Good to see all of you here. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, there's some pew Bibles there spread out throughout the, uh, throughout the room. You can turn on there if you're with your phones, whatever uh, you can get to for, to turn to Philippians 2. We've been going through uh, what I'm calling like a mini-sermon series on the book of Philippians. Uh, and the reason I'm calling this sermon series Joy, because one of the main words throughout the letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi is rejoice. But what's so absolutely strange about that is that Paul is in circumstances where you would imagine that he would do anything but rejoice. He is in jail in a first century Roman jail tied to a guard 24-7 and you would think he would just be in utter despair. But he tells the Philippians that he rejoices and then he encourages them to rejoice. And so I think about where we are right now, coming into kind of a new ministry year, a new school year, and as we're coming out of the pandemic, a lot of us, we have a little bit of a new energy, but there's also that question of, we're also kind of exhausted, and how can we kind of sustain energy and sustain enthusiasm and sustain excitement and really what I, my hope and my prayer, this is what I'm praying for our church right now, and this is what my hope is, is that when we look at the book of Philippians, what Paul is saying is, is that he rejoices in Christ. He rejoices because he, he says it. We, we looked at it last week in chapter 1. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's so united to Christ that no matter what his circumstances are, no matter what his reality is, he can rejoice. And friends, that's what Jesus tells us in the Gospels. He tells us that we can, when we abide in him, that's where we can find joy. And that's really what my hope is, is that, that we would, as a church, our mission is to be so compelled by the love of Christ that we would embody him in mission to our neighborhoods. But first, we have to be compelled by the love of Christ. We have to be compelled. And so the way in which we are compelled is to look to him to look to him and to unite yourself to him and to abide in him. And really that question is, this is the question I wanted to explore last week with you, is when you look to him, how do you think he's looking back at you? What is his posture towards you? So much in my own Christian life as a pastor, I can so much struggle with believing that Jesus is like, come on, be better, kind of like, come on, you can do this, be better. Come on, you got this. But that's not what the Bible tells me. That's not what the Bible tells you. When we look to Jesus, he actually is delighting in you. No matter where you are right now, that's what I want you to know, is that Jesus delights in you. Number one, just because he created you. And number two, because it is his mission to redeem you. And until you are able to, to receive that, until we, Village Church, are able to receive that, we're not able to be, to live out our mission. This is why it's so critical for us to be compelled by the love of Christ by looking to him. So that's really what my hope is with this sermon series, is that we can really rejoice when we look at Christ because he's, he is looking right back at you and he is delighting in you right now, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through. He is delighting in you. I want you to hear that. And I want you to receive that. So we come to Philippians 2, and we're going to hear, uh, this is kind of a, a, a bit of a technical passage that I'm going to have to 
kind of find my way through. So you're going to have to, we're going to be flipping through some scriptures because I've kind of, I need to kind of go through a little technicality here. But also, really, my, my hope is that you would just continue to hear this theme running through his letter of rejoicing. And particularly, he invites us to look to Jesus. That's where we're going to be able to find joy. And so uh, let's, let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Praise to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Yes, Father, Son, and Spirit, you are true, you are good, and you are beautiful. You are so delightful. You give us your word. You give us not just to instruct us, but to show us the love that you have for us. I pray that your word, that we would have eyes to see you in the word, Jesus. That we would have ears to hear you, your word. That we would have hearts that receive you in in faith and in joy. Would your word be the power of salvation for all who believe? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my son is now a senior in high school which is crazy. Um, Time flies. I know you guys are about to do this parenting course. My only advice is time flies. (laughs) I don't even know. (laughs) Time flies. All of a sudden, your child will be a senior in high school. Oh, no. What are you doing? So so, uh, I'm doing a lot of just reflecting and and all sorts of things. My son just had his first uh, football game of his senior year. The stadium was packed out. So kind of just really kind of trying to enjoy the moment that, that we're in. Um, but I'm also reflecting back to my own high school days when I was a senior. Uh, my wife and I actually went to high school together, uh, and we were seniors together at the same time. And we, uh, I don't know if your high school had senior superlatives. Did your high school have senior superlatives like, you know, most likely to succeed, right? Best all around, most athletic. Well, when I was recalling this week when it came time for the to vote on the senior superlatives in our class. I, I remember, literally, it was fourth period, and everybody got into fourth period, and we, everybody started lobbying for who they were going to vote for what. And I decided to join in. 
And I decided to join in because we kind of started th saying, like, because I kind of knew what award I wanted, and I wanted people, but I didn't want to come out and say it. So I started lobbying because I knew, see, I wanted most, oh, sorry, I, didn't want, I wanted best all around. That's the one I wanted. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Because I had all, you know, I was the captain of the FCA. Like, I had, I was the captain of my basketball team. I was, you know, I had, I was in beta club. I had all these accolades, right, that were just really great. And I thought I wanted to get best all around. And there was a girl named Maya Sutton, again, pick the, the name up, who I knew was probably going to get best all around. And she was actually my best friend at the time. So uh, I was really, so, so there was another guy, one of my best friends. His name was Chris Hayes. He was one of the best athletes in the county. Uh, we played baseball growing up together. Uh, when, he, when we were 13 years old, we had brave scouts coming to watch him. Um, so he was like this really great athlete. And I was like, this guy should get most athletic, obviously. Because I knew that Chris Hayes, everybody was going to vote for him. And everybody already started, yeah, Chris is going to get best all around. Everybody started saying that. Chris is best all around. And I said, oh, no, I've got to figure this out. And I, I kind of started lobbying. I said, no, no, no. Look, I mean, Chris, he's like the most athletic. He plays football, basketball, baseball. He's all county, some in all state. He should get most athletic. And my ex-girlfriend, my Lindsay was her name, she came up to me and she said, I know what you're doing. <laughs> you want best all around. No, I don't. No, I don't want best. I don't No, I just, no, Chris is obviously the, the most athletic. I mean, he should get it. I mean, she was right. She saw right through me. <laughs> I wanted best all around. Ended up, he got best all around. I got most spirited. <laughs> and let me tell you a secret, and do not hold this against me. I was the mascot for my high school football team. I dressed up in a black knight. I got all the people excited about uh, the, the team uh, game for pep rallies and whatnot. I dressed that, you know, I went out and had all my props and everything. So I got most spirited. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Well, anyways, I, why do I tell you this story? Because even like when, you know, senior year, I, I feel this with my son right now, and, and it, I felt it then, and even as I look back on it, I wanted glory. Like I wanted attention, I wanted admiration, I wanted glory, right? So in Philippians 2, actually what Paul is telling the church here, he's telling the church that joy has everything to do with glory. It's all wrapped up in glory and how we pursue it. This is what these verses are about. It's all wrapped up with glory. So I want to explore a couple questions with you. Just two questions, really. The first question centers around this, what I'm going to call the false joy of empty glory. The false joy joy of empty glory. And then the second question centers around the true joy of empty glory. So the false joy of empty glory and the true joy of empty glory. So let's look first at the false joy of empty glory. And we're going to jump to verse 3, where in, in our, uh, probably in your Bible, if you have the ESV, it says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul is saying, in other words, do nothing for your own glory. That's what he means when he says rivalry or conceit. Do nothing for your own glory. Why? We have to ask the question, what's the result when we pursue our own glory? That's really what I want to, to, to kind of explore with you for the next few moments. What is the result when we pursue our own glory? We really don't have to go far in the pages of Scripture to look at what the result is. I'm going to go just 
again, you don't have to turn there with me, but just recall, if you can, the, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And as we recall the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, I want to read to you from Genesis 3. And just listen in from, from Genesis 3. I just want to read, setting up the story here. You remember the serpent comes. There's a, the, the, knowledge of tree, the, the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gives Adam and Eve the freedom to live life, whether to obey him or not obey him. And he says, do not go and grab from this tree. But then the serpent comes in and says, did, I, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman reminds him, yes, that's what, that's what uh, God said. But the serpent says this to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And listen in this, to, to this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was the delight to the eyes. Isn't that like kind of how we pursue glory? We see something that looks delightful. Best all around. Ooh, you could fill in the blank for yourself. Vocation-wise, family-wise, whatever it is, something that looks, a de- looks like a delight to the eyes for your own glory. And that the tree desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit. Right? That's, that's the... The thing I want you to see right here is, is that when we grasp, that's what, that's what it means to pursue your own glory. It's this motion. It's this posture. It's grabbing. We grasp for our own glory. She took of its fruit, and then what happens? Her eyes were open, but she did not become wise. <laughs> no. She became shameful. She hid. Adam hid. That's what happened. They hid themselves from God. So what happens is when we pursue our own glory, the result is shame. We feel shame. That's how you and I have been designed. That's, that's the story of sin. When we pursue our own glory, when we grab at things to, for our own name and for our own admiration, what the result is, is not good. It's shame. You might taste a little bit of the goodness for a minute, for a moment, but then it goes away. And shame is the result. I'm going to do something that most pastors probably don't do. I'm going to quote Madonna. Um, I'm wearing, notice I'm wearing a Madonna mic. And I'm quoting Madonna. Oh, that's, I had to say that. That's, uh, no. So it's, uh, if you could put the quote up. This is from Vogue magazine like several years ago. This is what Madonna says, who you know, has been one of the most successful uh, singers uh, throughout the last several decades. She said this in, um, in a Vogue magazine interview. She says, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been devoted to conquering some horrible feelings of inadequacy. inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being of worth. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting and worthless. And I have to find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being inadequate and mediocre and it's always pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove it. I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Isn't that fascinating? She's one of the most glorious you know, entertainers of our time. But what's inside of her? She's just got this nagging feeling that she's mediocre and inadequate. And even when she gets 
to one of her concerts and she has all the people screaming. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's never enough. And you can fill in the blank with all sorts of stories, right? You know, that most spirited award. Where is that for me right now? It's in a box somewhere with all the rest of my trophies, right? That's the example of a trophy. You earn a trophy or a medal. I know, Greg, you've earned a lot of them running. (laughs) But, you know, like, you're going to put them away one day. and They're going to sit in a box somewhere in your basement or in your attic, and they're just going to collect dust, right? That's because glory is not only shameful, it doesn't, it's not just, it ends in shame eventually, but it's also fleeting, right, and fading. That's the second thing I want to note about empty, the false joy is fleeting and it's fading. Think about even when you go to museums, like the History Museum, I used to, that was one of my favorite museums in New York when I lived there. You go to a museum and you see all these artifacts of civilizations, and they're kind of like ruins, kind of sometimes intact and sometimes they're not. And you see some of the former glory of all these ancient, of Rome and Greece and Egypt and all these great civilizations, but it's, it's all fading, it's fleeting. There's a book in the Bible that actually deals with this, it's called Ecclesiastes. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says this in, in chapter 3. He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time, but he has put eternity into man's heart. So much so that everything's beautiful in its time, but it, everything kind of has this fleetingness, this, this sort of fading kind of thing to it, the, uh, element to it, so that when we try to grab it, that's kind of the whole, that's what uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to say. He's, he's saying life is so fleeting. We try to grab at it, and it's gone. By the time we get it and try to grab at it, it's out of our hands. The reason is because you and I are made for more than that. We're made for eternity. We have like that classic God-shaped hole in your heart, whatever you want to say, that you were made for eternity. It's true. You were made for eternity. And that's why I began the sermon saying, and we're doing, this, we're doing this sermon series, saying the only way you're going to find joy is in Christ. Because joy is, the source of joy is God himself. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is from God. You're not going to find it anywhere else but in God himself. There's a, uh, a philosopher who, uh, who said this quote that kind of rings around in my head. You know, when we get to kind of grab those things that we want, we come to a point where we ask the question, is this all there is? At some point in your life, <laughs> no matter how much success you achieve, you say, is this all there is? Is this all there is? You hear, Madonna, you hear even the greatest people who have the greatest success saying these things. So, the first point, joy, the false joy of empty glory is when we pursue glory on our own for our own name for our own sake. Right? It's, it ends in shame because it's fleeting and it's fading. Go with me here. I want to now, get, I'm going to get a little technical with the second point, the true joy of empty glory. So this, this is the second point I want to consider with you. And what I mean by this is, and what I mean by this from the text is, we can find true joy in Jesus who emptied himself. The true joy of empty glory. It's counterintuitive. It's the other way around. But we can find true joy in Jesus who emptied himself of his glory for our sake. In other words, we can find true joy in the humility of Jesus. True joy is found (laughs) in the most unlikely place, 
and the humility of Jesus. And I love, and here's what I want to uphold to you. It's not just the humility of Jesus. That's not only the way I want you to think about it. But it's also because of his ministry, his entire ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. Augustine has this wonderful way of talking about it. He calls Jesus the beautiful Savior. That in his incarnation, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, there is beauty in all of it. And that's where we're going to find joy is when you see that story as a story of beauty. When you can look at it as something you would uphold as beautiful. John 10 describes Jesus as the good shepherd. But actually that Greek word is also means beautiful. The beautiful shepherd. The beautiful savior. And that's really what, I, as we go through the next part here, we look, this is Paul just summarizing the, the, the life and death of Jesus. I want you to, to see the beauty of it because that's where, friends, we're going to get compelled by the love of Christ. It's when you can say, Jesus is the beautiful Savior. And we have to be really careful here when we talk about how Jesus emptied himself. And I want, here's where I'm going to get a little technical, right? When Jesus emptied himself, Jesus did not empty himself of being God. That's not what he emptied himself of. Because Jesus, we believe, is fully God. The, the historic Christian faith says Jesus is fully God, and he's fully human. So then what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Jesus emptied himself by this, by laying down the right, the privilege, and the status of being God. He emptied himself by laying down the right, the privilege, and the status of being God. In other words, he emptied himself into, you know, you think about like, how he empties himself. He doesn't just empty himself into nowhere. He empties himself into human form and confines himself into human nature. And that's the way in which he set aside his right, privilege, and status of being God. And I want to go through a couple things here because when you look at his ministry, we actually see, first of all, when Jesus goes into the, like, right when he's commissioned after his baptism, Jesus hears the great words. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God the Father says that. Remember the spirit comes into the, into, onto the scene in the form of a dove. Jesus is commissioned into his ministry. And then right, you remember what happens right after that? He goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. But what does Satan tempt him with? He tempts him, tempts him three times with this exact same thing. He says, if you're God, if you're the son of God, then you'll do this. Then you'll throw yourself down. and or you, Look at all the kingdoms. If you're the son of God, if you fall down and worship me, then I'll give you all this. It's attacking the very thing that Jesus emptied himself of. So the Jesus says, no, don't tempt me. But it's not just that. He overcomes the temptation. Again, they're getting a little technical here, I know. Get, go with me. Stick with me here for a second. It's not just that he in his vocation as the Savior, as the beautiful Savior, is able to uphold that vocation and not, you know, and and continuing to lay aside the status, the privilege, and the right. But if we look at the scene at his death, it's the very shame that you and I brought upon in this world, that humankind brought in this world. He takes on that shame on the cross. He takes that shame on himself on the cross. Just listen again. 
I just want to read what this will be the last scripture I'll read uh, before we get back to Philippians. He says, this is Matthew 27, at this, this is the scene of his death. Listen to the shame he, he uh, took upon himself, he bore. It says, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the, gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him, put on a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed on his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. If you've been around the church, you've probably heard that so many times. You've probably heard that read around the time of, of the Good Friday especially. I've heard that so many times. <laughs> but if we're going to have a joy that is sustained, we will never be able to get over this passage. The fact that Jesus took the shame that was meant for you and I. He took it upon himself. He laid aside his right, his privilege, and his status so that he could take on not only human form, but Paul says it, but even, he, even to go to death, to submit himself in obedience to death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating thing that could possibly happen to Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Augustine's trying to get us to see. Isn't that glorious? The counter, this, what's so counterintuitive is, is that the people at the time, they're mocking him. But yet, it's so glorious. Friends, let's look back at Philippians 5. I want you to hear Paul say this. Philippians 5, he says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, being humped, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Then you get to the therefore. Therefore, God exalted him. Therefore, God given his, has, has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Do you hear the glory? He's given him the name so that not only giving him the name so that every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. And friends, that's where we have to, to find ourselves looking at Christ, at his exaltation, at his glory, so that we can be wrapped up in this. I heard one pastor say it like this, to say, Jesus is enough. Until we get to the point where we can say, Jesus is enough. He being exalted in the heavens, having the name that is above every name, until we can say, he is enough. No matter, and don't add anything else to that. He is enough. He alone is enough. Friends, now, I actually want to close with the first verses. The first verses from chapter 2, where Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, what does that tell us? That describes what it means to be a, united in Christ and abiding in Christ. When we are united in Christ and abide in him, we can experience encouragement, comfort. We can experience love, affection, sympathy. Because so often, what do we try to do? We, try to, we read this verse and we try to say, okay, I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pursue my own glory. I'm going to be humble. 
right? So the last thing that you need to do is to go try to try on your own to be humble on your own, because sometimes what I do is I try to be humble, but really I'm just seeking my own glory through the pretending of my own humility. That's why it's so vital that you and I keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And so remember I told you at the very beginning, this is the motion, right? That grabbing is the motion, that we all kind of, that's the way we, that's the posture we have when we try to live our lives like that. We grab it, what we want. I want to invite you into a different posture. And I think what happens is when we live our lives, it's this posture, the way that, the way that we were meant to live. And actually, I would encourage you to find even 15 seconds <laughs> in the morning, maybe at noon, maybe in, in the evening, just, to, just to, do, to, to have this posture. Maybe sit on the edge of your bed and just pray to hey, I re- God, I acknowledge you. You are Lord. You are beautiful with this posture. And the more we can come to God with this posture to receive from him, the more we're able to live in humility. Because humility is not something you can produce. It's something that comes from abiding in Christ. So I invite you into that posture. And not even that posture. Maybe even when we try kneeling. (laughs) That posture of having our hands open, kneeling. Because what does that posture communicate? You are Lord. And I'm seeking to receive from you and to give to you glory. And as we practice that, as we look to Christ, we will experience joy. We will be compelled by Christ. And so friends, I invite you into that. I invite you to look at Christ. I mean, really the question is, why are we here? (laughs) Why are we here? Why am I here? We are here because we believe that Jesus is beautiful, that he is good, that he's true, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So friends, let's hold on to that truth. Let's believe it. Because that's where we're going to find joy, in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we do come before you. You are the source of our joy, and I pray that we would look to you and see you, see the beauty that exudes from you and all of your, who you are in your life, your ministry, your death, your resurrection, and your exaltation. We exalt you as king. We exalt you as God. We give you glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, we have a good...